Father, we thank you so much for your grace. It just overwhelms us. It's amazing to get into your word and realize all that you have for us and all that you have revealed to us and how if we follow the mandates of Scripture and apply these things in our lives, we know that whatever situation we face, we can have stability, we can have true joy and happiness, and nothing can turn the external adversity into stress in our souls. And Father, now as we open your word to study these things, we pray that God the Holy Spirit would make it all clear to us, help us to understand them, store them in our souls. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to James chapter 1. Now last night we had our first training class in video production. Basically we just got some orientation. Tomorrow night we get to play with the cameras. Friday night we get to play with the big cameras and the mixer and everything. And this is really exciting, I think, that uh, uh, each of us saw a new arena of, of application for this last night. One of the things is that uh, as we, it, the FCC has made it a federal requirement or that every cable company, if they have more than a certain number of households, then anybody in their area who comes up and says... Um, I've produced some videos that I want on uh, to show on the cable. They have to provide a public access channel free of charge and training and equipment so that the citizens in the area can get on and uh, do whatever they wish to do, say whatever they wish to do, and they're required to, to put it on. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means that we're going over here to Norwich, to the Century Communications, where we're filming everything. Now, some of you live where Eastern is the cable company. All you have to do is go down to your local cable company and say, I have videos. I want to show them on my cable company. And they say, yes, I have to do that. And they will put these videos on your cable company. So we can go through. Century covers Lyme, Norwich. Eastern goes to Waterford, New London. I think Griswold. Uh, Com something else goes to... Anyway, we can cover the eastern half of Connecticut. Yeah, whatever it is. Uh, the point is, we can cover the eastern half of Connecticut with different people in the church. So what you need to do, what we need to do, is organize a system where there's a rep representative in each district, each region, or each going to each cable company to be responsible for taking these videos. When we get to that point, that's about a month or six weeks off. Once we get past this training, then we have to go in and we have to work with the introductions and how the, the graphics are going to look like and pick our fonts and the pictures and the intro music and put all that together. And then we'll probably film four or five Bible classes before we uh, start running anything so we have a little backlog in case Christmas comes along or Thanksgiving and we miss it filming or whatever. So we'll have some, some backlog there. So that's kind of the idea. And it'll be interesting, I was telling the men when we were praying that what gave me this idea is that a friend of mine, uh, Orlando Salas, down in Houston, who we ordained at Baraka about five years ago, is Hispanic from Venezuela originally, I believe, or Peru, and is a restaurateur there in Houston and has a very successful restaurant, went down to the Spanish Channel and bought time an hour every Friday afternoon at 4.30. And he just went down and he had two cameras, one on him, one on his dry erase board. And he started teaching the Bible 
in Spanish. Six months later, he was sending out a thousand tapes a month. So it's a great outreach, great way to reach people with doctrine to let them know uh, what's available and to uh, uh, carry out our responsibilities as ambassadors and as witnesses. So, you know, it's just in the Lord's hands how He uses it, but it will give us an opportunity to get involved in that kind of an outreach. Well, we're working our way through James. As I was studying today, I was thinking back to the second verse. Now, I don't want to hear any sighs that we're going to back up all the way to the second verse because we're not. Count it all joy. I really think this is a phenomenal command, and I don't think that it's as easy, and I know it's not as easy to apply this as some people might think it is. I think it demands a certain level of spiritual maturity before you can move through tests, counting it all joy, before you have the ability to utilize that level of problem-solving device or stress buster. And it came to my mind as I got into this today that when we have the command here to count it all joy in these first two or three verses, that James is setting up a tone for the entire epistle where he's basically going to tell us in the rest of the epistle all of the doctrinal skills and techniques that we need in order to be able to fulfill this opening mandate because he's going to continue to come back to this theme of endurance and testing and joy over and again throughout this epistle. As we opened up with this, I brought in the concept of the soul fortress. And the the psalmist continually talks about how the Lord is the strength of our soul. He is our rock. He is our fortress. He is the bulwark of our soul. And so we have our soul here in this diagram. Uh, The soul is the real you, that is the immaterial part of you, and is comprised of five components. Your cognitive facility, the mentality of your soul, which is divided into a left lobe and right lobe. Your self-consciousness or self-awareness. You look in the mirror, you know who you are, are. You have your identity. Your volition. This is the chooser in your soul where you make your choices. Your life is the product of your choices. Whatever you do, whatever you become in life, all of that is the consequence of your volition. Right now, you are determining what you will be 10, 15, 20 years from now. Your life is the product and the outcome of all of your choices. We, we live in an era now where we try to uh, disavow personal responsibility for everything. And if somebody does something that is very heinous, we immediately jump to the excuse that they are somehow insane. And we're going to see this insanity defense with this guy who uh, shot up the the um, Capitol building this last week. But the problem with this is that these decisions that eventually culminate in a person becoming uh, what we would call mentally deranged, the product of years and years and years of negative decisions, of bad decisions, whether they're mental or whether they're overt decisions. No child is born schizophrenic, paranoid schizophrenic. He gets that way because of his response to the external adversities of life. And this is the very point that James is going to make when we get down to the end of verse 6, when he says that, the, that there's only two ways that you deal with this. 
Number one is in faith, by going to God in prayer, utilizing your problem-solving devices, and the faith rest drill is the foundation for all of the stress busters. Let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. So we have this image of instability. So you either have stability because you're walking by means of the Holy Spirit and you're applying doctrine in your life and you're using the stress busters to deal with the adversity in your life, or you're in instability. Now, you may think you're stable because you're handling life's adversities through this technique or that technique or or this uh, system, but eventually that will crash. And verse 7 says, Let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man. And we're going to see when we get there that the term double-minded is the Greek disukos. Sukos is the word for soul. Die to. To soul. This is the person who is, is at war within himself. He is completely unstable and eventually can become psychotic and what we would call insane. Mentally deranged. And that's the result of how they have handled the adversities in life. And so insanity should never be a defense for any criminal activity. They wanted to make each of these decisions they made over a period of years, and they did it. And because they wanted to make those decisions, they should be held accountable for every decision and its cumulative effect, which is their own uh, mental derangement. They are responsible and accountable for that under the teaching of the Word of God. So we should, ju- it be, should just be appalled when we see this taking place in our system of jurisprudence. How can you as a believer avoid this kind of soul instability? There are ten stress busters. Adversity is the outside pressure on the soul. Adversity is inevitable, but stress is optional. Stress is the inside pressure on the soul that if it is not handled by the stress busters, by building this spiritual fortification around the soul to prevent adversity from penetrating the soul, then the result is that the soul begins to fragment and come apart. And that ends up in in the Daisukas believer, the the psychotic believer. Now these ten problem-solving devices, these ten uh, stress busters, are God's tools that He has revealed to us as believers so that we can handle any and every situation in life. Remember, God is omniscient. That means millions and millions of years ago, He knew every single situation that would come up in your life. Every problem, every difficulty, every heartache, whatever it is, God knew about it millions and millions of years ago, and He made the complete and total provision for that so that you could handle that and He would receive the glory, not man. See, that's why grace orientation is fundamental in the, in the basics of the problem-solving devices. Because you have to understand grace that it's God and not you. It's not what we do. It's what God has already done for us and learning to rely upon that and trust in Him. So we have our, our problem-solving devices, the stress busters. It's so windy up here, it's hard to hold everything down. Okay, that'll hold it down. Our stress busters. Now, we're studying in verse 5 and the beginning of verse 6. But if any of you lacks wisdom, and in our study we saw that this is divine viewpoint of Scripture. It is what the Bible calls epinosis in the Greek, chokhmah in the Hebrew. It is usable doctrine. 
when the pastor or evangelist or teacher communicates the Word of God under the filling of the Holy Spirit, that goes into the mentality of the soul. We'll just simplify it here. This is the mentality of the soul. The Bible talks about two arenas within the uh, mentality of the soul. We call that the left lobe of the mentality of the soul. This is not the left lobe of the brain, but the left lobe of the mentality of the soul. And this the Bible calls the nous, N-O-U-S, or mind. And it comes in as gnosis. This is academic knowledge. This is simply a staging area. Now, a lot of believers accumulate a tremendous amount of academic knowledge about the Bible that they never convert into epinosis. And they can get into all kinds of discussions, uh, deep theological discussions and arguments about this or that or the other thing. And that does not mean that, that just because they have a lot of gnosis that they have a lot of epinosis. And I saw a lot of that when I was going to seminary. And that was true of every one of us. When you're going through seminary, you're in sort of a pressure cooker situation. You're in class six or seven hours a day. And I mean, it's just intensified. They're just cranking stuff into you. And you can't assimilate it nearly as fast as they're cranking it into you. And so you end up with a tremendous amount of, of gnosis. And that's why a lot of seminary guys cave into arrogance because they have all this knowledge and they think they've arrived. Under the filling of the Holy Spirit and the exercise of positive volition, gnosis is transferred when you believe it into the right lobe where it becomes epinosis. E-P-I-G-N-O-S-I-S. And when it becomes epinosis, this is usable doctrine. Now, when you come to Bible class and you sit here for an hour, you hear a tremendous amount of information about the Bible and about doctrine. When you leave, you get about maybe 20 or 30% of that gets down into your notes and you can remember tomorrow maybe 10% of it. Probably only 1 or 2% of it really gets over here as epinosis because you don't really understand it yet. Before gnosis can be transferred into epinosis, you have to understand it. There has to be real cognition there. You have to fully comprehend it. Now, the Holy Spirit makes it understandable to you under the term pneumaticos, or spiritual phenomena. P-N-E-U-M-A-T-I-K-O-S. Now, that means that you can comprehend it. That doesn't mean that you do comprehend it. Because we learn doctrine like we learn everything else in life. And that is line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. It comes incrementally. The first time we hear something, okay, now I've heard that, I have an overview. The next time we hear, okay, now I've got the overview, I can start plugging in some details. Uh, Under this concept, the Holy Spirit making it that spiritual phenomenon understandable to you means that you have the capacity to comprehend what I'm teaching in terms of doctrine. The unbeliever just goes right over their head. But you have the capacity to understand it. You may not understand it, and you probably won't understand a lot of things the first time you hear it. I remember the first time we got into a lot of discussions about uh, the divine decrees in seminary and the differences between 
superlapsarianism and infralapsarianism and sublapsarianism and all the intricate differences and the implications of that. And really, it took, took years of study of those concepts before I began to really see what that meant and what those implications were. And that's true for everybody. You, you start getting into a study of the, of the gospel of salvation and you start looking at all that's involved in what Christ did on the cross. And you look at all the various facets of the sin problem. The facet of the penalty of sin, which is spiritual death. Uh, sin is separation from God. Sin, the, the uh, uh, problem with uh, our position in Adam versus uh, the position of a believer in Christ. The problem of the character of God, that because God is absolutely righteous, He cannot have fellowship with a creature that is not absolute righteousness. And you begin to look at all of these problems that are the consequence of sin, and then you begin to look at all of the facets of Christ's work on the cross to solve those problems. Redemption, propitiation, unlimited atonement, expiation. All of these have their, their, their applications and imputation. And we're going to start dealing with these on Sunday morning in the first hour with Galatians to set up our framework for understanding justification and what justification is. Because I'm convinced that if you understand what the sin problem is, number one, and then you understand the concept of imputations in terms of the imputation of Adam's original sin, the imputation of mankind's sin to Jesus Christ on the cross, and the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us at the point of salvation, and then you understand all of these dynamics and how they work together, then you can never have a problem with eternal security. But before you can really address eternal security, and I know that there are some of you who have been talking with people who have problems with eternal security, and this is one of the ways that you can address that problem, but it comes incrementally. You don't just understand all of this stuff at once. You have to learn it bit by bit, line upon line. And as you do, and as you come to comprehend it, and what I've discovered with people is that a lot of times we've heard it so much we think we understand. Just because you can repeat it back the way the pastor taught it, and using his verbiage and his terminology, people think they understand the concepts. But they don't understand the concepts. They just understand they can just give it back from rote. So you develop your gnosis, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, and then that's transferred as you understand it and you believe it, it's transferred over into the right lobe as epinosis. Now this is all done under the filling of the Holy Spirit, and the filling of the Holy Spirit is the result of confession of sin. And these are our first two stress busters. Confession of sin restores the... We recover the filling of the Holy Spirit... We're restored to fellowship with God and we can start moving forward in the spiritual life. All confession does is get you to a point where you can go forward. Understand that. A lot of times people have gotten the idea that if I confess my sins and I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, it's just going to happen. But the Holy Spirit is not going to violate your volition. The Holy Spirit is not going to come in and tweak you to positive when you hit that test. The test is designed to determine if your positive volition will enable you, will carry through in the midst of that test so that you will reach over here into that doctrine that you've got stored in your soul 
pull out the right doctrine and apply it to that situation when that's not how you want to respond. And then you're going to move forward. That's what promotes spiritual growth. It is the Holy Spirit that helps you remember where you've stored that in your soul and what that doctrine is and how to apply it to the situation. The Holy Spirit does not do it for you. Confession does not move you anywhere. It just puts you in the place where under the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit, you can move forward. But you move forward by means of the filling of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine that's in your soul, the two power options that come through, and your positive volition. When you exercise that positive volition and you move forward, then you have spiritual growth. It's not something that's automatic. So you start here with confession and the filling of the Holy Spirit, and then you move to your basic concept, which we'll get into a little further on tonight, which is the faith rest drill, and then you build doctrinal orientation and grace orientation. Now, these are the problem-solving devices that underlie what James is talking about in verses 5 and 6. He says, but if any of you lacks wisdom... So immediately you realize that if you're going to solve the problems of stress and adversity in your life, if you think you lack something, back in verse 4, and what you lack is the doctrine necessary to apply to the situation. So that's bringing in problem-solving device number 4, doctrinal orientation. You have to have wisdom. You have to have that doctrinal orientation, that epinosis, in the right lobe of your soul. Let him ask of God. This is the prayer Lord, I need this, and God in His righteousness and justice will provide the Bible teaching necessary to give you the information you need so that you can apply it to those tests and move forward. Let Him ask of God, and it's all based on grace. And this brings in the fifth problem-solving device, which is grace orientation. We have to understand that we don't bargain with God, say, God, I'll do this if you'll just help me get through this trial. That's not grace orientation, that's legalism. And legalism is always the enemy of grace. God gives to all men generously and without reproach. It's not based on who you are or what you have done or what you haven't done or whatever failure there may be in your life. Whatever failures there may have been over the years. That's not the issue. The issue is that if you are in fellowship under the filling of the Holy Spirit and you pray, God will generously and without reproach provide the solution for you. And this is the point of verse 6. But let him ask in faith. Now, as we get started in this, last week, we looked at the, uh, began to look at the grammar of this particular passage. And we ended here, let him ask in faith. And it begins with the Greek word, iteo. Okay, I'm losing the sight here. I-te-o. A-I-T-E-O. And this is a present active imperative. It is a command. It is a mandate for you to ask in faith. By means of faith. In Piste, N plus the dative, E-N is the preposition, the dative of pistuo, the noun, or pistos, the noun for faith. N plus the dative has various nuances or meanings, 
but one of its primary ones is that of means or instrumentality. So what the solution here is that if you're going to use use prayer to apply these problem-solving devices, these stress busters, then that needs to follow a certain protocol. Now, a protocol involves the rules and regulations laid down in any type of procedure. Now, this protocol here is that we are to ask by means of, of, of faith. So, before we get into the faith aspect of this, we need to review the concept of prayer. So, we're going to look at the doctrine of prayer again. It's been about seven months since we spent some time in prayer if you remember back to last Christmas. So we'll just summarize the doctrine of prayer. Point number one, the key word here is iteo. This is the word, means to ask, to request, to petition. It's the key word used in the New Testament for intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer involves um, our supplication prayer. Supplication involves two categories. Category number one is uh, intercessory prayer, which is prayer for others. Category number two is the prayer of petition, which involves requests for oneself. Iteo is used five times by James, so we're going to see that prayer is a key aspect in applying the stress busters to the problems of life. Second point, let's define prayer. Prayer, first of all, is a grace provision. That means we did nothing to earn it or deserve it. God gave it to us so that we would have access to His presence. Prayer is that grace provision of what? Of the royal priesthood. There's a function of your priesthood. In the Old Testament, they could pray... But they had to pray through the, through the priests, through the Levitical offerings. They had to go through a priest in order to pray to God. Whereas in the church age, as a, a royal priest, you have the privilege of direct access to God at any time. Now we're so used to that that we don't understand how radical that notion is or was in the beginning of the church age in human history. That every individual believer had direct access to the throne of God. As soon as you bow your heads and address God the Father, you're there. You're in the throne room of the supreme court of heaven, the supreme God of the universe who created everything. So prayer is the grace provision of the royal priesthood whereby the church age believer has access and privilege to communicate directly with God. You don't go through anybody else. 1 Timothy 2 says that there is one God and one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. No one else. We have a unique royal priesthood and that gives us the access and privilege to communicate directly with God the Father. Now the purpose of this communication is to acknowledge our sin, express our adoration and praise to God. That's one function of worship. I don't want to beat this horse to death, but today we're living in an era when the term worship is being redefined as singing. And that's wrong. That is not how the Bible defines worship. 
Worship in the Bible is that act of submission to God. And that begins with understanding what God expects of you as a believer and being uh, oriented to that and submitting to His will in your life. That's worship. As an expression of that, you may invo- it may involve singing. But that's only one expression of worship. And today we have churches that hire worship leaders and have worship teams. And none of that involves the pastor. And they go through all this worship and then the pastor gets up there and gives a little sermonette for Christianettes. And they don't get very far and they don't learn very much. So, prayer involves acknowledgement of sin, expressing adoration and praise to God, giving thanks, expressing our thanks to God in every situation and for everything. And our gratitude is always a measure of our growth and spiritual maturity. You can always tell somebody who's not very mature in life. They're ungrateful. They may be given a lot and they're spoiled. They think they expect every, every bit of it, but they're not grateful for it. And you, we've all known people like that in our lives who lack gratitude. And they, because they lack gratitude, they're self-absorbed, they're operating on arrogance, the whole universe revolves around them, and they have no concept of of what reality is and they're divorced from reality and they have no capacity for life. And the opposite of that is the believer that's growing. He has capacity for life. He understands that all that he has is from God and he deserves none of it. And so he is very grateful for everything in life. And he is grateful in every situation and for every event because he knows that if he got what he deserved, he would be in the lake of fire forever and ever. You see, as believers, we don't get what we deserve. Not at all. Christ paid the penalty for us. So we don't, heaven is not what we deserve. What we deserve is the lake of fire. That's what everybody deserves if God gave them what they, what they needed because of their sinful rebellion and their unrighteousness. But God is gracious and He gives us all of this because of who He is and what He has done. So giving thanks is a vital part of our prayer. It focuses on... It also, I think, builds humility as we develop gratitude and we realize that all that we have is from God, it develops our humility, which in turn promotes teachability, all of which, as we'll see, is part of grace orientation. And this then promotes further spiritual growth. Giving thanks, interceding for others, and conveying our own personal needs and petitions, and then just conducting intimate conversations with God. All of that is part of prayer Let me go over that one more time for those of you who are trying to get it all down in your notes. Prayer is that grace provision of the royal priesthood whereby the church-age believer has access and privilege to communicate directly with God. The purpose of this communication is to acknowledge our sin, express adoration and praise to God, give thanks, intercede for others, and convey our personal needs, petitions, and conduct intimate conversations with God. Point number three. You do not pray to be spiritual. You pray because you are spiritual. Now that is a vital point that most people miss today. Most people are so concerned with going out and doing something for God, whether it's evangelism or giving or prayer or going to church, because they think that promotes spirituality. But you do those things because you are spiritual. They are the consequence of your growth and maturity They do not cause or bring about your growth and maturity. 
So prayer is the result. First you learn something. You come to church, you sit down. The pastor teacher teaches a few things about what the Bible says about prayer. You learn that as gnosis. You believe it. It is converted into epinosis. You apply the doctrine in terms of prayer. And then, and that's a result of your growth. You learn the epinosis. That's your growth. Then you apply it. So prayer is the consequence of your spiritual growth. Prayer is a privilege of your priesthood, and you develop this first by growing spiritually. Your prayer life is no stronger than your spiritual life. Point number four. Prayer is for believers only. It's not for unbelievers. Unbelievers do not have a relationship with God. Uh, prayer is intimate family communication. And they're not in the family. How do you become a member of the family? You become a fit member of the family by faith alone and Christ alone. In Christ alone. For as many as received Him, to them He gave the power to be called the sons of God. Only by faith in Christ, accepting Him as your Savior, can you enter into a the royal family of God, and therefore pray. The only prayer that the unbeliever can get heard is the prayer of salvation. Father, I believe Christ died on the cross for my sin. That's the, the only prayer of the unbeliever that gets heard. Point number five. Prayer demands concentration and thought. Too often we fall prey to prayer quickies. We just shoot off these bullet prayers to God throughout the day and we don't sit down and really think about our prayers, and we studied at Christmas the prayers of the Old Testament and New Testament that showed that these people would sit down and craft their prayers and think about the doctrine that that, that built the foundation for what they were getting ready to say. They would go back into the Old Testament and they would go from promise to promise in the Psalms and in, in Isaiah or Jeremiah, and they would call from these promises principles or just a phrase here and a phrase there and then they would weave them together in terms of their petition or in presenting their petition to God. So prayer is not something that is light although there are bullet prayers and we do that all the time and that's legitimate but it should be undergirded by this foundation of a rich prayer life. It's critical as a part of our spiritual life. While emotion may be present it is never the focus or the issue in prayer. Prayer relies on doctrine and fact, not on subjectivity. doesn't matter how you feel. Sometimes we can feel pretty bad because of a lot of different circumstances. But that doesn't mean God does not hear us. If we follow the, the guidelines of Scripture, God will hear us. Point number six. Prayer should be the highest priority in your life after learning Bible doctrine the highest priority in your life because it's part of your family, intimate relationship with God the Father. Prayer should be the highest priority in your life after learning Bible doctrine. If intercession is the highest priority of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, then it should also be the highest priority in your life. This is specifically stated several times in Scripture the primary role or one of the primary roles of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit in the church age is interceding continually for the church age believer. Point number seven. As believers, our prayers fail because we fail in our spiritual lives. We do not understand the will and the plan of God. The psalmist said, If I regard iniquity in my heart, And the word there for regard 
is the Hebrew word for to look at, to see, to examine. So the picture there is the same picture we see in the communion passage in 1 Corinthians 11. Self-examination. If you look inside your soul, what's going on in the mentality of your soul, you look there, you examine your life to see if there's sin there. If there is sin there, unconfessed sin, then you need to confess that to God who instantly cleanses and purifies and then you can move forward. Our prayers fail because we fail in our spiritual lives. We do not understand the will and the plan of God. That means that a lot of times we don't accurately perceive doctrine. So we're asking for things we shouldn't ask for. And we're expecting God to do things that God is not going to do. One of the biggest mistakes people make in prayer is that they go to certain passages, certain promises that are not intended for them. They go into the Old Testament, they take a promise that's meant for Israel, and they apply it to themselves. And God never intended to do that. That promise was meant for a particular group of people in a specific historic context. Or maybe that promise was made to to a prophet or to Abraham or to Moses or to David or someone like that. And it's not really a promise that's meant for you to claim. And so you misinterpret or misapply it. A classic example is our passage right here in James 1.5. If any one of you lacks wisdom. Well, how many people think wisdom means knowledge? Lord, I've got an algebra final tomorrow and I just need you to... You know, we laugh. I remember doing that when I was in high school. Lord, I'm claiming this promise. I need wisdom tomorrow. I've got this test and I need that. Incidentally, he did not answer that prayer. Because the solution wasn't taking a scripture out of context. The solution was studying. And unfortunately, I had a chemistry final that same day. And I spent most of the night studying for the chemistry final to pass it. And didn't do quite as well on the algebra final. Okay. We can't take passages out of context. We have to understand the will and the plan of God or our prayers will fail. Point number eight. Every believer is commanded to pray. Every believer is commanded to pray. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, Colossians 4.2, and Romans 12.12. We'll just look at a couple of them. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, Pray without ceasing. Only two words in the Greek. The command, pray... And the word adialeptos, meaning persistently or habitually. Pray habitually. Pray pray persistently. This should be a habit that you cultivate in your life. That doesn't mean that you take your attention away from your job or your work, but that you always are ready to pray. You're always in fellowship. You can always in a position where you can shoot off those bullet prayers to God. Pray continually. Pray persistently. Pray habitually. And Colossians 4.2 Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. And the word there for devote is the Greek word proskartereo, which is used in several passages related to prayer. Proskartereo. P-R-O-S K-A-R-T-U-R-E-O. And that means to continue to do something with an intense effort. There's intensity behind this. There's 
purpose, there's thought, there's concentration. It has with it, in many passages, the possible implication of doing something despite difficulty. Overcoming the obstacles. Overcoming our natural inclination not to pray. To persist in something. To keep on despite any obstacles. Devote yourselves. Make it a priority to pray. Keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. This is the mandate to pray. Point number eight, every believer is commanded to pray. Point number nine, prayer changes things. It does. Sometimes we pray and it seems like God doesn't respond the way we think He should, but prayer changes things. There's one example after another throughout Scripture of how prayer changes history. James 4.2 says, You have not because you ask not. In other words, it will make a difference. Point number ten. Prayer consists of four basic elements. I use the acronym CATS. C for confession. Simply acknowledging or admitting your sins to God the Father. It is not a word that involves emotion. Now, you may sin sometime in a way that really shocks you. Maybe it shocks people around you and you feel really bad. Maybe it hurts people around you and you just feel terrible. Well, that's okay to feel terrible. It's okay to feel sorry for your sin. It doesn't impress God. It's not the issue in confession, but it's okay. But once you confess that sin to God, you admit and acknowledge that sin. That's all that word means is to admit or acknowledge something is true. Once you admit or acknowledge it, God wipes the slate clean. He removes, the psalmist said, He removes that sin as far from you as the east is from the west. It is no longer an issue. That means when you take it up two minutes later and start feeling guilty all over again because you blew it, all you're doing is getting yourself out of fellowship again, writing a guilt trip, and refusing to believe that God has forgiven you and that you've been cleansed. And you're saying, Oh Lord, I just have to do this and take it over myself and I have to have... Uh, my own works and add my my grief and my sorrow to this in order to, to really get over it. Well, that you, that's legitimate maybe to feel that way, but it's not legitimate to engage in that activity to impress God or to gain uh, for divine forgiveness. Confession is simply admitting or acknowledging your sins to God. A is for adoration. This is the praise function of Scripture, of, uh, of, of praise function of prayer. We see this again and again in some of the adoration psalms, the praise psalms uh, in the Old Testament. T is for thanksgiving, expressing our gratitude to God in every situation and for every circumstance. And then S is for supplication. Supplication is the expression of our requests. Two categories we've said already, uh, intercession for others and petition for ourselves. Prayer may involve any one or any mix of those categories. We can have just intercessory prayers. We can have just petition prayers. We can have prayers of simple confession, prayers of praise, uh, prayers of confession and thanksgiving, prayers of adoration and intercession, any kind of mix. But in order for that prayer to be heard, we have to make sure that we are in fellowship. Now, if we keep short accounts, then that's not something for us to worry about. 
So those are the four elements of prayer. And then point number 11, prayer is addressed to God the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, why is that? Why is it that we pray to God the Father? Well, in the first place, when Jesus taught the disciples to pray, He addressed it to God the Father. But some people might say, well, He wouldn't address it to Himself. That would be sort of redundant in that situation. Why would He address it to Himself? Well, if the role of Jesus Christ in the church age is to be our advocate and our intercessor, and He is continually making intercession for us, then why are we going to Him with our prayers? He is interceding with the Father for us, so we do not go to Him in prayer. He's already doing that. We go to the Father. That's the one He is addressing in His prayers for you on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis. So we don't address our prayer to God the Son or God the Holy Spirit because they're both involved in interceding for us with, to the Father. So they continually go to the Father on our behalf and we address our prayer to God the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit under the principle of 1 John 1, 9, confession and restoration of the filling of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, Hitherto have you asked nothing in my name. Ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. And once again there we see the connection between prayer and the happiness, sharing the happiness of God and, ex- and being able to fulfill the command of James and the problem-solving devices or the stress busters in that prayer is not a stress buster per se, but it is the means by which we implement the faith rest drill, implement a grace orientation or doctrinal orientation, or express our love to God, the personal love to God the Father, many different ways. So it's it's a method, a means by which we uh, use the stress busters. Now this passage says, gives us a command, let him ask, a mandate, present active imperative of Viteo, ask by means of faith. And this brings us to the third of the problem-solving devices, the third of the stress busters. First, confession, then filling of the Holy Spirit, then the faith rest drill. Now, the faith rest drill undergirds all of the subsequent stress busters. If you don't understand the dynamics of the faith rest drill, then you're going to have problems going moving past that stage in your spiritual growth. For in a lot of ways, this channel moving around here is a reflection of the stages of spiritual growth. What the tools, the techniques, the spiritual skills you have to master in order to move forward in your spiritual life. So we're going to take some time to go through the doctrine of the faith rest drill. Just a few points by way of introduction. The faith rest drill is one of the ten stress busters of the God's plan for the church. We've looked at all of these tonight. Confession, filling of the Holy Spirit, faith rest drill, doctrinal orientation, grace orientation, personal sense of eternal destiny, personal love for God the Father, unconditional love for all mankind, inner happiness, and occupation with God, with occupation with Christ. Now, to move forward, we have to master the faith rest drill. So what is it? The beginning point of the faith rest drill is to believe God when He makes promises, promises to us. For example, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's your mind. 
the, the right lobe of the mentality of the soul. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. That's human viewpoint. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. That's the correct translation there. He will make your paths straight. That doesn't mean God's going to send off lights. But if you're trusting God, operating on the faith rest drill, applying doctrine in your life, as you move forward, God is going to straighten out that path in front of you. At the time, you may feel like you're in a maze and you don't know which way to turn. But when you get done, you're going to look back. And if you're walking moment by moment with the Lord, you'll look back and you're going to see that that's a straight line. At the time, you may not do that. You're just trusting the Lord. You're just grabbing onto Scripture with every ounce of your being to make it perhaps from one minute to the next because of the adversities that you're, you're facing. Other passages, other promises that, that we claim. Psalm 4.8 I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for you, Lord, only make me to dwell in safety. What a tremendous promise. I remember many times claiming that uh, when I, in times of uncertainty. Uh, I remember a few, few occasions when I used to lead a uh, wilderness ministry, like an outward bound type of program. And we would be out in the wilderness somewhere, and sometimes we'd face some pretty harried circumstances and situations and thunderstorms and floods and, and uh, uh, sudden summer mountain snowstorms or times when you're up at 13,000 feet above timberline and you're on a mountain climbing expedition and all of a sudden it's late in the afternoon and you're curled up between rocks as a thunderstorm moves across and lightning is bouncing off the boulders around you. So you just curl up and I remember times like that claiming this promise that we can just relax, go to sleep, the storms may rage around us, but we know that God's in control and He's the one ultimately that makes us dwell in safety. We can have our burglar alarms. We can you know, engage in every protective device we can. But it's God ultimately who provides the safety. Psalm 34:19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. We have all kinds of adversity. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. Psalm 55, 22. Cast all your burdens upon the Lord and He shall sustain you. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Psalm 56, 11, In God I put my trust. I will not be afraid of what man can do to me. And 1 Peter 5, 7, Casting all your anxieties on Him for He cares for you. Other, there are many, many other promises and passages that you can go to, but all of these, and you should memorize some of them. I think we have the little booklet, uh, Christian at Eve, uh, somewhere. I've, we've got some that we're going to put out, and that's a great collection of promises in there on the Faith Rest Drill. Faith Rest Drill begins with simply believing God when He makes promises to us. That's where we start off in spiritual childhood. We just we learn about confession. We learn that if we tell God what we do, then God forgives us. We're going to be filled with the Spirit. Then we begin to learn some basic promises about God. And we begin to grasp onto those promises. And in our spiritual infancy, 
we begin to grow as we claim those promises and apply the doctrine that's there. It's called mixing the promises of God with faith. A third point, the faith rest drill is the stress buster used by believers in all dispensations. And it's referred to in Ephesians chapter 6 under the metaphor of the shield of faith. The shield of faith. It's, once again, the shield metaphor, the fortress, the bulwark, the rock that protects our soul. It is the shield of faith. Point number four in terms of our introduction, the faith rest drill is the glue that holds all of the stress busters together. It's the foundation. It's the cornerstone. Point number five, in the church age, God the Father has provided this as part of our portfolio of invisible assets. We have an incredible number of spiritual assets. Ephesians 1 says that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's more than we can catalog or classify what God has provided for us. And this is just a part of that, those invisible assets that God has provided for us. And point number six, these are designed by God for every believer to use to handle any adversity, any suffering, any difficulty in life. What happens is you grow and mature as a believer and you learn doctrine and doctrine is stored in the right lobe of your soul, then you apply this and you begin to use confession and you use the filling of the Holy Spirit and the faith rest drill and you begin to use doctrine and orient your life to the Scriptures and orient your thinking to the Scriptures and you become oriented to grace. And then as you continue to grow, you get a sense of your eternal destiny. You have a personal sense of of your eternal destiny in heaven that you are becoming now what you will be in heaven. And your love for God, and you grow, and you begin to apply these things, and your spiritual life strengthens, and you begin to withstand these attacks of external adversity. And you realize that in order to face the problems of your life, What gives you the strength is that you go to that which is in your own soul and you bring that out. God has given that to you so that you can handle your problems. You don't have to whine about it. You don't have to rely on somebody else. You don't have to go to a counselor or a therapist or somebody else. Now, there are some times, I believe, that in spiritual infancy, because believers, you just don't know, and you're under a lot of adversity, you have to have a little advice from a more mature believer or you go talk to the pastor or whatever to deal with that particular situation because you haven't had time to grow. Or you should have had time to grow, but you've made a mess out of everything you want to get started again. But the issue is, and the main thing is, is to come to Bible class because it's a slow process. Growth in the spiritual life is like growth in everything else in life. It takes time. It takes consistency. And so you build these things here a little and there a little. And then point number seven under the introduction to the faith rest drill, believers have choices every time any adversity, any prosperity, or any situation arises in their life. And it's at that time that you make the choice of whether you're going to apply these stress busters to the adversity or the prosperity situation in your life. Whatever that test is, maybe it's a test of adversity, Maybe it's a test of um, 
of prosperity. We all want that test of prosperity. Lord, just give me that prosperity test so that I can apply doctrine in it. But most people fail the prosperity test because they forget to apply doctrine because life's going pretty easy. Every situation gives you the opportunity to apply doctrine in your life. Now that brings us back to our chart, our flow chart here of what happens in the spiritual life. You come to salvation, you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. You begin to grow. Doctrine is stored in the right lobe of your soul and you encounter various situations. These are tests of doctrine. They test the doctrine that you've got stored in your soul and give you an opportunity to exercise your volition positively or negatively. Under the filling of the Holy Spirit, when you're growing, you move in this direction. You produce divine good. You have real life in your life. You develop capacity for life and for happiness. And your life produces evidence, according to Romans 12.2, that the will of God is good and perfect. As you continue in the same direction, you produce a long-term endurance, steadfast endurance. This is what culminates in the adult spiritual life, and it goes as a cycle. Ultimately then, in eternity, the believer who follows this path at the judgment seat of Christ receives rewards and inheritance. The believer that fails, that's on negative volition, that makes a, a, a mockery of grace in his life, that perhaps it goes into legalism, and moral degeneracy, or maybe he goes into um, uh, licentiousness and immorality and immoral degeneracy. His life is characterized by, by sin, human good, and temporal death. He's a failure in life. He's miserable on the inside. He is unstable. He's going to end up a psychotic believer with a hardened heart and in spiritual regression, and the sin nature dominates his life. But he still goes to heaven. But he shows up at the judgment seat of Christ and there he experiences the greatest shame he will ever experience. The greatest soul misery he will ever experience as he is faced with his failure with all that God has done for him and all that he missed out on. But nevertheless, and he experiences a loss of rewards, but this shame is temporary. For we are told that the Lord will wipe away every tear and there will be no more sorrow and no more tear, no more pain for the old things will pass away and he will go into heaven Yet it's through fire, the Scripture says. So the issue is always your volition and learning doctrines and learning the, how to handle stress and adversity so that you can uh, stimulate your growth, your spiritual growth, and move towards spiritual maturity. Now next Wednesday night we'll continue. We'll talk about the faith rest drill, what it means to mix, our, our pro- mix promises with faith, to use doctrinal rationales and to reach doctrinal conclusions, and how that stabilizes the situation and stabilizes our mental attitude so that we can then apply doctrine and move forward in the midst of difficult situations with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for your uh, incredible grace and all that you've provided for us. And the more we look at these doctrines and study the, the principles involved in these uh, stress busters and how we can avoid stress in our souls we can protect our souls and strengthen them because you, O oh Lord, are our fortress. You are the rock of our soul. And we can count on you in every situation. So, Father, we pray that you would take these things that we've studied, that you would help us to use them for our desires to live lives, to pursue spiritual maturity, that you might be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.